This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Andrew Walter. Andrew is a Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne, and he joined me to talk about UK domestic politics and the current negotiations on Brexit. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm with you till noon today and I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio once more Professor Andrew Walter who is an expert in international relations. He's based at the School of Social and Political Sciences at Melbourne University and we are about to discuss Brexit, uh, but as we were discussing off air, congratulations Andrew on completing a book. Thanks, Amy. I'll come back and talk about that yeah. if you want. It's on a it's on a boring subject, relatively <laughs> speaking, of uh, you know the politics of banking crises oh, over well, two it's centuries. Quite, quite relevant. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? Well, you know, Australia hasn't had one in a while, but uh, yeah, it's got some other problems. Yes, we have plenty of problems. Mm. Um, so basically. Brexit. I had a bit of a pre-vote. Um, I think it was pre-vote update in December. Gosh, time's flying. Mm. And uh, we were basically going to have um, a vote on a deal, which uh, Theresa May put to the Parliament. She'd already delayed the vote because she kind of knew it wasn't going to go so well. And then she had a historic defeat. Um, which was predicted by everyone um, and it didn't seem to go all too well. What was the, the Parliament's, UK Parliament's response to the first deal and um, was it a wholesale rejection of all the deal or were there just a few, you know, parts that were really contested? Well, yeah, to say that uh, they didn't like it uh, very much is an understatement. This, were, this vote lost... Uh, the government lost this vote by 230 votes. So it drew uh, opposition votes from across the parliament, including substantial numbers from within Theresa May's own party. So the the party is breaking down uh, before our eyes and has been for some time. Theresa May clearly doesn't want to precipitate a deep uh, break and indeed a split within the Conservative Party. But that's effectively what we're already seeing. Um, The attitude So the attitude towards the deal um, differs depending... There are multiple coalitions with very, very different and opposed views within the parliament, and that reflects a deep confusion and split within the electorate. Um, No one knows what Brexit means, or it means different things to different people, and there is no agreement on what it should be and what the outlines of a of a of a good and a sustainable deal should be. So that's mm. the fundamental problem. Yes, well, there are a lot of different um, amendments that were put forward in response to the deal as well, highlighting that split and yeah. the various coalitions, and um, most of them didn't get voted for. Mm. Um, They were voted against. There are a few that were close, but there were um, some that uh, Theresa May wanted others to vote for. um, And I think it was the Brady Amendment, which um, she was supporting after losing her vote. Yeah. Just before we get to Brady, probably the most important amendment on that list of more than a dozen 
was won by Yvette Cooper and mm. Dominic Grieve uh, from the Labour and Conservative parties, respectively, to push back the Brexit date by nine months. And that failed, yeah. I think, by 13 votes. That one may rise again as we get closer to March 29th and no deal um, effectively is looming. The Brady Amendment essentially revives an old, uh, I think many people have called this a zombie idea, the idea of going back to the EU and rediscussing something mm. that's being, has, that has been discussed extensively and dismissed by the EU uh, for two years, uh, which is the existence of so-called alternative arrangements to the Irish backstop. Mm. These are fantasy ideas about technology preventing the appearance of so-called border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic for trade purposes. They, those alternative arrangements don't exist anywhere in the world and there's no credible argument that the British have that they exist or will exist in the near future. And for that very good reason, the EU has said, mm. we can't agree to this. So yes. they insist on the backstop that protects Ireland. Yeah, and so for those who haven't been following this closely, which is probably many people except me and you, um, what is the Irish backstop and why do we even need it? So we need it because embedded in the Good Friday Agreement that created peace, established peace in Ireland in 1998 under the Blair government, uh, there was an agreement to eliminate border infrastructure and to allow trade between the Irish Republic, an independent state, of course, mm. and uh, the northern Irish uh, part of the island of uh, the island of, of Ireland, Ireland. <laughs> um, that is part of the UK. Yeah. Um, and this was broadly supported by most people in Ireland, that is the establishment of peace and the establishment of essentially free trade as part of the EU. And a strong commitment in the Good Friday Agreement not to unravel that. Mm. Um, Tony Blair and John Major, before the UK referendum on Brexit in June 2016, both warned rightly so, mm. Brexiteers like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and others, that Brexit would reopen and undermine the Good Friday Agreement. They were right and Boris Johnson and others denied that this would be a problem, but of course it's become a problem, mm. inevitably so. The backstop is essentially a product of the EU realising that the British have become such an unreliable partner and negotiating, and their negotiating commitments are not worth the paper they may be written on, and various British ministers have said so, that they may back out of any agreement, including David Davis, Boris Johnson and others, that the EU rightly says, and at the insistence of Ireland, that the a border infrastructure and the Good Friday Agreement must be respected. That is, mm. that no border infrastructure should be erected and that uh, the, the island of Ireland uh, should remain an integrated economic union. And for that reason, the backstop essentially says that if there is no agreement between Britain and the UK on a future trade deal, mm -hmm. as a backstop insurance policy, Northern Ireland will remain in a customs union and single market arrangement by default with Ireland mm -hmm. that will respect the Good Friday Agreement. So it's an insurance policy and indeed embedded within the withdrawal agreement that was rejected by 230 votes by the British Parliament 
is a concession by the EU that if in the future such alternative technological solutions um, to uh, the backstop arrangement appear miraculously mm. <laughs> out of the sky, the clouds part, and lo and behold, someone invents a technological a solution, solution mm. that they will opt for that. Mm. So it's already in the withdrawal agreement. Yep. And it's amazing and indeed deeply, I think, concerning that the Brady Amendment says that's unacceptable, the withdrawal agreement, which embeds the possibility of these alternative technological arrangements mm. should they appear coming into force. It's worrying that they want Theresa May to go back now to Brussels and renegotiate something that's been hashed through a dozen mm. times. Theresa May agreed in December 2017 in the so-called joint agreement with the EU that the technological solutions did not exist. Mm-hmm. So I cannot see what is to be achieved in this. It looks like a delaying tactic on both the part of the Brexit ultras, that is the people who want to crash out without a deal, yep. and Theresa May who probably wants to run the clock down to May 29th so mm. that the Get parliament leverage. is faced with no alternative but to vote yes. Yeah. Well, it is quite shocking and it's a bit sad really that that's become one of the major sticking points of this deal is yeah. the Irish backstop. Um, I guess... It is interesting, though, that uh, perhaps because Northern Ireland may at some point or now or into the future be part of that customs union, is um, is Britain really not happy with that because it's basically not a hard Brexit? It's it's not like totally um, leaving the EU in full? Yeah, so that's true for the so-called Brexit ultras. Mm. That is, the people associated with a group called the European Research Group a complete misnomer because yeah, they, yeah, they do no research uh, <laughs> of a fundamental kind on Europe. Yeah. They do not understand it and they systematically have a kind of British schoolboy 1950s, 60s understanding of Britain's role in the world mm. and of the European Union. They do want a hard Brexit that severs all ties and, frankly, they seem not to care very much the head of that, the effective leader of that group in the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, mm. has said that he doesn't need to travel to Northern Ireland to understand the Irish problem. And various other members of it have said the same thing. This, uh, I think, unfortunately reflects a deep and long-standing uh, sense of superiority and indeed dismissal of Irish issues and Ireland, Ireland's Problem, historic problems mm. by a certain segment of the Tory party. So I wouldn't say that Britain wants to crash out a certain yeah. hardcore, and I would call them radical revolutionaries, who are willing, in effect, to push Britain and Ireland over a cliff in order to engage in a kind of fantasy experiment with a kind of global, free-trading, free-wheeling, buccaneering Britain, taking Britain back to the good old days, you know, Invasion Day in uh, January the 26th, a couple of centuries ago ago and so on. Um, Empire, um, when Britain was great, make Britain great again. Mm. But in fact, it's going to, I think, substantially impoverish Britain, not only in the economic sense, but diplomatically. It's making Britain look like an appallingly poor diplomatic actor Mm. uh, with whom few countries looking on may think that they can trust in the future. 
Um, yeah. It's playing into the hands of rogue actors like Russia in particular. Um, so it's very difficult to see uh, that this experiment is going to lead anywhere good. It is. It's really concerning. And what was the response to the other elements of the deal? Because so much has been paid attention to in terms of the Irish backstop. Were there points, other points in various parts of the parliament where they said, oh, I'm not really quite sure about that? Yeah, well, you know, Boris Johnson has said that maybe they won't pay the $39 billion settlement deal, um, which, you know, again is... Uh, the EU is in the strongest bargaining position. It's yeah. Britain who wants to leave, and it's Britain who has committed in 1998 and again mm. in December 2007 to respecting the Good uh, Friday Agreement, the Irish peace settlement. So Brit it's Britain who is the demandeur here, and the EU is a massive market. It's the largest market in the world, and we are seeing various big uh, British stroke European companies, global companies, saying that they will move operations. Parts of the City of London, Airbus. Yeah. Um, Airbus, I mean, extraordinary, uh, has a, a German CEO and some parts, again, of the Brexit ultras in Parliament stood up. One, one uh, British MP stood up, made fun of the fact that this was a German, said effectively that Britain has stood up to Germany before. Remember 1940, they will do so again. This is Project Fear. But, the, you know, so they're unwilling to listen mm. to the voices of business. Now, uh, maybe you might say, well, good on you, but this is the Conservative Party, remember, which has historically yes. been the party of business. So they are running off the rails in terms of their historic constituencies. Um, a lot of the... To get back to your question, sorry, um, mm. a lot of the more moderate parts of the Conservative electorate and the Tory party are deeply worried that crashing out uh, would lead to uh, a catastrophic economic and political outcome mm -hmm. and that the Conservative party would never be forgiven, or at least not for a generation, and would lose office to scary Jeremy Corbyn uh, and friends uh, for 20 years. Uh, so that's why there's a lot of underlying sentiment, uh, a cross-party sentiment in Parliament, that there should, be no, there should not be a no deal. There has yes. to be a deal. Let's kick the can down the road if, if needed, uh, or let's reach an interim settlement, mm -hmm. maybe Theresa May's. Um, but uh, how to effectuate that cross-party desire to avoid a no-deal is, in practice, really difficult in a parliament that's dominated by the executive branch. Yes. Well, most of those amendments were in various forms seeking to avoid a no-deal, weren't they? Yeah, a lot of them were. Um, but parliament can vote for a no-deal, It's but it's a bit like voting not to have rain during a test cricket match uh, mm. at Edgebaston or Lords. Uh, you can express a sentiment, but how do you actually stop it from happening? You have to actually say what will be done, and mm. that's the fundamental problem. It is a big problem, and one of the propositions um, of the Labor Party and Jeremy Corbyn has been um, to suggest perhaps a customs union with the EU. Uh, it's taken a long time for Jeremy Corbyn to have a position on anything except that they support Brexit. <laughs> it's... Uh 
equally fantastical on the Labour Party side, or at least the official Labour Party side. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really want to take a hard position. He fears, for example, that if he supported a second referendum, that there would be a revolt by those Labour constituents who voted for Brexit among, you know, and there are a lot of those. Um, a majority of the party wants to avoid, and indeed a majority of the constituents want to avoid a hard Brexit, and that's why he's come in with this fuzzy, we want a customs union mm. with Britain, but at no cost. Um, so part of the so-called Labour Party's red lines for any future deal is that we want to retain a close trading relationship above all in manufacturing because that's the part of the economy yes. that they like and where a lot of their constituencies are drawn from. But they want the EU to accept this deal without insisting on any other costs. That that proposal would break the four freedoms of the European Union, free movement of goods, services, labour and capital. So the EU will insist, and rightly so again, mm-hmm. that if Labour wants to cherry-pick parts of the single market, it must accept some costs. And Labour, again, doesn't want free movement either, or at least... The, the leadership. So, you know, um, to, to expect that if, for example, Parliament um, agreed a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and there were an election, a hurried election, which uh, the Conservatives do not want no. because they, they may well lose given how appalling uh, an uh, electoral campaign uh, Theresa May is, um, if it were nevertheless to happen, um, the Labour Party would not be able to go back to Brussels and negotiate an effective deal either. Yes, because have a mandate. They're proposing a fantasy as well. <laughs> I wonder why these people get paid. <laughs> uh, you may well ask that question, and I think a lot of British voters uh, should demand a lot better. We are stuck with what seems to be a British uh, political class, which I think has deeply underperformed expectations. The European mm. Union, a, a few of the inter- European Union interlocutors have said they've been amazed at how appallingly incompetent the British negotiators have been, beginning with David Davis uh, over the past two years. They used to see Britain as pragmatic, hard-minded, sensible, good diplomats. Mm. Theresa May booted out uh, uh, Ivan Rogers, um, the former ambassador to the European Union, who was probably the person who knew most about the European Union and uh, had most expertise to negotiate a deal because he didn't agree with the government uh, and its various uh, propositions, Mm. right, for good reasons. Um, So it's a bit like Stalin murdering uh, some of his generals in the 1930s and then being faced with Hitler. So effectively they've sidelined key people um, and that's been part of the problem but they have deeply uh, uh, I think uh, they've provided a deep disservice to the British people Yes, and we've seen so many different and new Brexit secretaries yeah. It's uh, How do you maintain any level of consistency? Yeah, well people would be forgiven for not knowing who the latest one is um, and effectively the Prime Minister's office, the Cabinet uh, the Cabinet office is in charge of the negotiations so you know, a lot of this is fig leaves mm. and people like David Davis who dramatically underperformed had to be effectively pushed aside. Um, so, yes, it's chaotic. 
the European Union has rightly said, we've been through all this before for yes. two years. Um, no deal uh, mm. if you won't accept what's on the table or ask for an extension. Mm. But take you, you, you're going to need more than three months, which is another one of the amendments on the table, because we don't believe that you are ready. There's no internal consensus on what you want, and it's not up to us to decide what you want. Yeah. Um, so the Brits, until they decide what they want, and there's no consensus in Parliament or among the Cabinet or among the electorate, it's very difficult to know what the European Union should do. Well, I um, don't envy their position. No. Um, and it is a good point. What do you want um, is a really good question. Yeah. Uh it's something which is interesting. I, a lot of people have criticised Theresa May because she hasn't um, consulted widely across uh, parties and, yeah. and you know, she hasn't spoken with Nicola Sturgeon and included Scotland, for example, right. in these um, discussions and negotiations. There's a lot of bad blood now um, over this because yeah. people haven't been brought along and it's just been a kind of command and control approach. That's Do you right. think that's a fair assessment? I think, I think unfortunately, it is fair. Um, it's probably an unrealistic expectation, however, to expect someone like Theresa May, a diehard blue-ribbon conservative, essentially to choose country over party. Mm. Now, how, however much we would like her to rise up above the political... Uh, contestation of the day and to be more prime ministerial in inverted commas and to build a cross-party coalition which is surely there for the taking to avoid a hard Brexit and to compromise with the European Union that, in, a, in a way that would provide Britain with a pretty soft Brexit. I think there is a large parliamentary consensus for that. Mm. To take that route would mean that she would lose the Brexit ultras. The people who really, I think, essentially are sending Theresa May back to Brussels in the full expectation that she will fail, which will then allow them to say that this has betrayed the will of the people, whatever mm -hmm. that means, yes. um, and allow them to take uh, the view that they can then vote against the deal and hopefully, in their view, precipitate a crashing out of Britain after March 29. So... Um, so Theresa May has chosen party and party unity. She has made a, a massive concession to the far right, the rad, these radical revolutionaries, and saying, OK, the Irish backstop is unacceptable. I will go back and renegotiate it. Rule Britannia and maybe this time... Boris Johnson wrote an appalling, yet again, another appalling article in The Telegraph a week or so ago saying with an image... He has his schoolboy images uh, and he trots these out from time to time. Mm. We can have our cake and eat it. Um, you know, a very yeah. primary school image during the referendum uh, campaign. The latest one is... The the schoolboy bully, the EU. Oh, of course. <laughs> will be stood up to by the plucky the plucky uh, British boy gets up, uh, shakes the dust out of his hair, turns around and says no to Europe. Um, so images of 1940, mm. uh, Commando magazine, you know, all these sorts of things being drawn on by Brexit ultras and by, I think, radical English nationalists yes. like Johnson and others um, who want no deal, effectively. Yes, well, there's been a lot of 
poor um, imagery, but also poor comparisons. Like I know just recently the... um, one particular MP was talking about the Marshall Plan and how England was apparently hard done by in the Marshall Plan, which historians quickly ran to uh, correct the record because it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, well, a bit. it's a bit like Trump's America. There are all these... Um Half at best, half truths being pushed about. I mean, mm. you know, bring you know three hundred and fifty million pounds uh, a week going to the European Union, for example. I mean, a, an outright lie during the referendum campaign, yes. and all of these half truths which are plucked up, and it just shows, I think, the underlying superficiality of a lot of the English ruling class. Mm. The underlying superficiality, by the way, of a lot of English uh, education. Uh, doing greats at Oxford. Um, or PPE, for that matter, allows a lot of bluffing. People who are quite good at bluffing, people who are quite funny, like Boris Johnson, people who have a certain amount of charisma, um, I think to have hoodwinked a lot of the English electorate, um, or the British electorate, but primarily we're talking about England here, um, into thinking that somehow um, they can make Britain great again. And it's a very dangerous uh, sentiment when effectively they are brushing, either brushing aside expert advice or saying that these people are betraying, uh, betraying Britain. Uh, You may remember headlines when judges ruled that Parliament had to have a meaningful vote in the uh, in the deal. Um, the judges were called by some of the tabloid press traitors. Mm. So this, uh, you know, has a lot of um, overtones of Trump's America and populism more broadly. It's surprising that it's now so much in the open. Was this kind of populist or nationalist sentiment simmering underneath for a while? Yes, I think it was. And I think a lot of people thought it had gone away. Uh, I think a lot of people had thought that prosperity and indeed the enormously wonderful deal that Britain got uh, out of its um, membership of the EU since 1973, it got to opt out, it got to cherry pick within Europe. It didn't have to accept uh, various social clauses and other things. It stayed out of, that's right, stayed out of the euro. So it had a wonderful deal. Now it's become deeply apparent to pretty much everyone that any alternative is inferior and Mm. substantially inferior to actual membership of the eu they i guess are um you know and they're trying to pretend uh that this doesn't matter and that plucky britain uh, will pick itself up from uh the the school ground and uh you know shake the dust off and get up and do what britain's good at but again this is based on this is not based on expertise. All of the experts, including the government's own Treasury and various other parts of the administration, have shown uh, pretty systematically that this will be a significant hit to the economy, to Britain's political standing in the world and to its prestige and reputation. Mm. I'm speaking with Professor Andrew Walter from Melbourne University and we are talking about Brexit and UK politics. Um, I'd like to quickly examine a couple of things Scotland um, had a referendum on independence. Uh, It's talking and has been talking about it for a great length of time. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon is constantly saying, oh, well, well, I'm just waiting for the right time to to bring it back. It seems like this, um, a new referendum or a second referendum would be quite 
far away. It doesn't seem like a very realistic proposition at the moment. Would that be true? Mm. You're talking about a second Scottish referendum yes, there, on not independence. a second, a second referendum not a Brexit. on Brexit. No, yeah. not a people's vote, as they've yeah. said. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's certainly, um, and again, Scotland um, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon have been generally have been looking on uh, the Brexit negotiations in horror. Mm. Um, so they've, re- but they've revealed a couple of useful things for the Scots. One is, firstly, how unreliable a partner, a negotiating partner, Westminster can be. Yes. And secondly, that any negotiations would be long, extended, and appallingly difficult. Extracting highly integrated states and economies mm. from. You know, in in the case of the EU, it's been since 1973 that various facts, legal, economic, political, social, cultural, have been created on the ground since 1973, and pulling apart this. I mean, so it's like a it's like a 40 plus year old marriage. Yes. Um, and dividing up the swirls and agreeing, effectively, you're still going to have to live right next door. You mm-hmm. can't you can't get around geography. And so it's a bit like, um, you know, deciding on, you know, do you have a fence and, and all of the diff- uh, who determines interactions between the two uh, properties and, and so on and on what basis and what kinds of rules. In the case of Scotland, of course, it goes back to the early 18th century. And so the level of integration is so much higher. And uh, I think Scots uh, looking on have also, of course, thought, well, if we went for a second referendum, which was, you know, which was decided fairly decisively mm. uh, in favour of remaining um, a few years back, uh, it would be an appallingly difficult exercise actually to extract Scotland from the rest of the UK and potentially highly costly. Um, so I think there's a lot of hesitancy that, that of course, uh, Nicola Sturgeon and others point and want to use a, the potential of a second referendum on Scottish independence as a negotiating uh, weapon mm. uh, vis-a-vis Westminster and Theresa May. But they haven't been very successful, have they? Because, no. as you said earlier, um, it's pretty obvious that Theresa May is choosing her Conservative Party unity over any uh, serious negotiation with the Scots. So, go figure. I, yeah. You know, so, uh, and I guess that reflects, again, a deep sense of English superiority vis-a-vis the more peripheral nations of mm. um, the two islands, um, but also a sense that, well, the Scots probably don't have anywhere to go um, and, you know, we don't have to take too much account of their interests. Yes, Theresa May is calling her bluff. Yes. Yeah. It is. It's interesting to see that, and I guess that's why the Scottish, um, the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, are doing so well, is because they are riding on that um, sentiment of Scottish people being highly frustrated with Brexit and Theresa May, and also referencing their historic, you know, rivalry and many, you know, political battles mm. and violent battles. Um, Another thing I'd just like to to quickly touch on before we go is the EU and um, their response, like the various countries' kind of response to Theresa May's approach. Have there been, I mean, like France, for example, um, and and others, um, how have they responded to this kind of, oh, well, it didn't work out, so I'll come back and renegotiate? You know, are are there kind of like... Angela Merkel has been another example um, of, you know, having a strong voice on this issue. Yeah. So the British, uh, the British 
clearly believed uh, that the EU would soon fall apart in the process of uh, the negotiations that have taken place till now, that the unity uh, that they professed was a sham and that when it came to it, you know, as Boris Johnson and others said, the German car industry, you know, they sell so many cars to us mm. um, and they have so many interests at stake. They'll force the German government uh, to come round and cut a good deal for us so that we can have our cake and eat it too. In practice, what happened uh, was that in the early stages of the negotiations, for example, David Davis uh, said at the end of phase one of the negotiations, well, having done that, we might actually change our minds in the future. That sent a very strong signal to Europe that the British couldn't be trusted, Mm -hmm. that they had to write down in the withdrawal agreement very locked down legalised arrangements for the Irish backstop because meanwhile the Irish government was looking and listening and saying we can't trust these people they might pull out and so you know again to go back now and ask for an exit option from the backstop is just unacceptable to Ireland and they Europe has a strong interest after all what is Europe about it's about defending little states from the big ones Hmm. in the way that they were not in 1939-40 and so on. Um, And so Europe has made a very strong and clear point of defending Ireland's interests in particular, but more broadly, the integrity of the single market, of the customs union, and the various integrated arrangements that Europe has built up since the late 1950s. And rightly so, because they are faced with various existential threats that we don't have time to go into here as well. But they need to insist on the integrity of the system and on standing up for little guys. And in the process, of course, they are demonstrating to Britain just how uncomfortable life is Mm. and will be on the outside in an increasingly dangerous world, in a world where Europe will no longer be inclined to say, we need to defend Britain's interests against, let's say, Russia or whomever, China, whomever else in the future, or indeed the United States. Yes, yes. Well, the, the political goodwill has been whittled to yeah, nothing. Exactly. And Europe would be quite uh, reasonable in saying, we've had enough. Make up your mind and come back to us. We'll give you yeah. another year. I suspect in the end that that's what may yeah. happen because... I don't think either side... Neither neither side has a strong interest, with the exception, as I said, of the Brexit crazies, the ultras, on on Britain crashing out. Yes, it does seem um, that for long-term stability, it would be best to sort it out properly the first time than to have to kind of... As we said uh, many months ago when we were talking about the legislation that has to be put in place to replace... existing legislation that's been created based on their um, membership of the EU. It's Mm. a huge task that can't, you know, once this negotiation has been confirmed and Parliament agrees on whatever the agreement is, then all this legislation needs to be written and brought into law. Yeah, exactly. And that's this is a project of years. We will be talking about Brexit, whatever happens. And even if they agree Theresa Mail's deal finally, or some mm. modern, slightly tweaked version of it before the end of March, um, we will be talking about Brexit, or they will be talking about Brexit for decades. Yes, it's such a shame too, because yeah. there are a lot of other issues <laughs> that troubling Britain <laughs> beyond their membership of the EU. Of course. And yeah. in fact, you know, that's part of the problem that people voted for Brexit in part because of all of those other issues, mm. failing towns, regional cities, education policy, social policy. 
Or blamed on Brexit and the Europe, uh, European Union, helped by tabloid newspapers. Yes. Um, but that wasn't the problem, and those problems remain. They do, they do. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming in and uh, helping us to understand a lot of the complexity that is arising out of this issue of Brexit. Pleasure, Amy. Nice to see you again. You too. That was the wonderful Professor Andrew Walters, and he is at the University of Melbourne. He uh, lectures and writes in politics and international relations and he has a book coming out so if you're interested in banking crises <laughs> that's the, the one oh sorry go what was it called the wealth effect the wealth effect i Cambridge like it university press next yeah. month and and uh, if you are listening overseas and you're in london you can go to the lse the london school of economics for the launch 4th of april mm. awesome yes um i was joking to andrew he might get stuck over there <laughs> It is possible. <laughs> you are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.